Have you ever felt overwhelmed by the unknown? Do you find yourself wishing for a bit more slowness, stability, or surety about your next steps? Maybe then you'd finally feel at home, you think. The yearning to belong somewhere, to have a home, to be in a safe place, is a deep and moving pursuit, Walter Brueggemann wrote in 1977. The Bible itself is primarily concerned with the issue of being displaced and yearning for a place, he says. The crisis of rootlessness that Brueggemann identified 45 years ago seems all the more prescient today as jobs and school incline us to move back and forth across the country, and as young adults question the faith communities in which they were raised. Today, we're going to reflect on these yearnings for belonging and how we can sit with them even in the midst of many unknowns. Welcome to Kitchen Meditations, a weekly podcast from Edible Theology where we examine the ways God meets us in the kitchen and at the table. I'm your host, Kendall Vanderslice. If you are hungry for a taste of God's hope and healing in the mundane tasks of your everyday life, then you've come to the right place. May these meditations bring you a bit of grounding as you prepare to eat today and every day. Kitchen Meditations is made possible by a generous community of donors. We here at the Edible Theology Project want to thank all of you for your support of our work. If you haven't given to our fundraiser yet, we would love you to consider joining us in bridging the communion table and the kitchen table with a one-time or monthly tax-deductible donation. To learn more, visit www.edibletheology.com slash fundraiser. Let's get started with a little spiritual mise en place, a prayer to orient ourselves before we begin. In the professional kitchen, mise en place is the process of preparing your workspace for the dishes you're about to make. It involves measuring your ingredients and reading your recipe all the way through so that you can pay attention to all that the tastes, sounds, and smells have to teach you about the dish at hand. I like to think of it as a time to prepare my own mind and body as well, asking God to be present with me as I cook or as I bake. Our spiritual mise en place today is drawn from Walter Brueggemann's book, The Land. Slow your breathing, and now as you breathe, repeat with me. Inhale, God is concerned, and as you exhale, with our yearning to belong. Today we have the pleasure of reflecting on this topic of home and belonging alongside author Lori Ferguson Wilbert. Lori is the author of the recently released book, A Curious Faith. In this reflection on her journey towards a more contemplative faith, Lori invites us to ask good questions rather than hold fast to good answers. Our conversation brought me back again and again to Brueggemann's description of yearning to belong. I hope you enjoy listening in. Thank you so much for being with me here, Lori. I'm excited to have you. Thank you for having me here. What does home taste like for you? Hmm. I think a couple of things come to mind for me. Um... I think that probably some sort of strawberry rhubarb pie with an all butter crust probably mm-hmm. is is homey to me. Beans and rice for some reason, mm-hmm. I don't know, like the smell of 
beans simmering on the stove for part of the day. I like to cook my beans slowly. And so I think those both kind of smell like home. We live on the edge of the Adirondacks, and so balsam pine is everywhere around here. And I don't know if you've ever smelled balsam, but that is definitely a scent that feels like home to me. It feels very comforting. And so our house often smells like that. We have a candle that smells like balsam. Mm -hmm. I know it's not taste, but it's it's one of those smells that's so... Yeah, it's like it, it kind of... I think home tastes warm. I don't know that it has necessarily like a sweet or sour or tart taste, but it yeah. tastes warm mm-hmm. to me. So your home now is just outside of the Adirondacks. Can you give a little bit of a <laughs> recap of the many places that have been home for you? Oh my goodness. Yes. Many <laughs> places. So... I was born outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and I lived there until I was 18, and then um, moved to upstate New York, and was there until I was 23, and then I moved to Central America for a year, and then back to New York, and then to Tennessee for several years to Chattanooga. I finished up my, my college down there. Back to New York, and then I moved to Texas in 2010 and lived there until 2015, and then lived in Denver, Colorado for a year, and then in DC for a year, and then back to Texas <laughs> for three years, and then now back up to New York. And when we moved into this house, I asked my husband, can we get rid of our packing materials because we've been <laughs> carting them along with us for so many moves? And he said, yes, we'll burn them. It's it's our version of burning the ships. So mm. we are at home here. And yeah, I think we'll be here for a long time, I hope. This season, we're reflecting a lot on the idea of home and how our relationship to home mm-hmm. shapes us and grounds us. And I, a few weeks ago, was talking with a friend. He is a theologian who focuses on migration. And he was talking a lot about uh, the irony. I believe he was quoting Walter Brueggemann, but the the irony that we in America today have the most ability to be most rooted, kind of more than humans in Ever. human history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yet have this deep disconnection from home and place. And it creates this kind of deep anxiety. And I, he also was saying that in his experience, those who are migrants and refugees seem to have the deepest understanding of that need for grounding and relationship to home and family and place that almost like this lack of ability to be grounded helps you understand the deep need for it and to, to respect it and care for it. And I know that has been my experience as someone who has moved a lot and in in knowing you, it, it feels like that is definitely your own experience as well. I feel like I have always been homesick, mm-hmm. always. And, you know, there's all kinds of words for that that theologians have talked about for generations. But there's always been a sense of homesickness in me, always a sense of it's not even a lack of settledness. It's more just a sense or or not even like a the grass is greener somewhere else. That's not what it is for me. It's more just a sense of displacement almost, Mm -hmm. just a sense that I have 
it's more like I have been displaced instead of just because of some of the circumstances of my life and some of the reasons for some of my moves. And I think other people might have a different story around that. Maybe they want to be super transient. That's not been my story, mm-hmm. but it has been, I think I've lived in, I've moved like 22 different times. I've had 38 different roommates. And <laughs> and so it really is, for me, it has been a hard thing to mm-hmm. live through. But also I think sometimes I reflect on the gift of all those experiences and all living with all of those different people. I love all of my roommates, like almost without exception, they've been great situations and most of them are still friends with me to this day and so I've gotten to know amazing people. And so there's, it's kind of a double-sided, you know, there's two sides to the coin. Yeah. Yeah. So in your, your book, you open with a reflection on Rainier and Maria Rilke, quote, that be patient towards all that is unsolved in your heart, live the questions, and perhaps gradually without noticing, you will live along some distant day into the answer. And I love that for you, this this even is connected with the pull to move yet again. I wonder if you could share with us a little bit more about the moment that you first encountered these words. The moment I encountered them was a moment of deep I would say it was a moment of of when a lot of suffering from my early 20s caught up with me. In a really short period of time, my family had moved from Pennsylvania, everything I'd ever known my whole life. My younger brother was killed in an accident. My parents went through a really, really messy divorce that involved me in ways that I that were just really heartbreaking for me as a young adult. And had to be witness to some things that were really heartbreaking. And and these things were kind of all piled on top of each other over a short period of time, a period of time about five years or so. And and so I I had I had just suffered a lot and didn't have a lot of space to grieve. And I found myself that summer with some space because of some things that were just going on in my life. And it was kind of coinciding with a real season of, so this was in 2009 or 10. It's when we called deconstruction faith crises. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it was a faith crisis for me. Um, I would come to know it as sort of a deconstruction process. But really, it was a, a crisis of faith for me. Just a, if God is good, how could all of these bad things happen? And so in that space, I read this this quote from Rilke, and, and it kind of gave me courage, I think, to chance the possibility that a move across the country from New York to Texas could be a beautiful thing. It could take me far enough away from some of the intensity of the suffering that I could start to get healing, but it could also perhaps bring me something good. And it did both of those things. I was able to to trust the process in a way that I hadn't been before and um and let go of some really hard things and also like receive some really beautiful things by by choosing to be patient with the process of what it means to live the questions. 
I actually was introduced to Rilke through these same words at, I think, what sounds like a pretty similar sort of point in my own faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was 21 and I was studying abroad in Tanzania. I had gone under the guise of adventure, but really I was uh, trying to run away from a particular church, from a particular friendship, from, I think, questions that left me just really unsettled at home. And of course, the questions came with me. (laughs) Yeah. And I was in, you know, this semester, a lot of so much downtime. And so I just sort of had to sit with those questions and, and face them in a way that um, I really was scared to do. But I was at that same time introduced to Thomas Merton's prayer of unknowing. Mm-hmm. Um, when the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so, but I believe the desire mm-hmm. to please you does in fact please you. Yeah. And I think those two, both Merton and Rilke together, gave me permission to not have answers in a way that I had never experienced before. And I'm wondering, what do you think it is that causes so much anxiety around Mm. questions, around sitting in unknowing? I mean, we're we're made of matter, right? Mm -hmm. And Lewis said, matter matters, (laughs) (laughs) or something like that. And I think that if our matter matters, then the tangibles of life matter. And most of our questions ultimately, or sorry, not ultimately, but I think most of our questions kind of swirl around or begin around things that matter, things of matter. Mm. They swirl around, you know, will I be okay? Will I be taken care of? Will I have a home? Will I have someone who loves me? Will I be able to love? Will I have enough finances in my bank account? Will I love my job someday? These are really like human things, right? In a lot of ways, they're the gateway to deeper, to deeper questions about God and about ourselves and about the world. But if we, if we don't sit with the immediacy of these like tangible questions, it can be really hard to move into the depths of what's beyond them. And I think that whole process just makes us really anxious because we don't want to think what happens if I lose my home? What happens if I don't have enough money? None of us want to entertain that thought for very long. It's an uncomfortable thought, but I think even more than that, we don't want to entertain the thought like, is God still good if I lose all my money? Is God still good if I don't have a home? And I think when we start to reckon with those questions, we have to really take a good hard look at the world around us. We have to take a good hard look at suffering in the world. It keeps us, it lifts our eyes off of our own matter and and puts it on the rest of the world and poverty and brokenness that we see around us. So really the complexity of asking a simple question like, can I pay my bills this weekend, is it can get a lot more complex pretty quickly. I wonder too, we don't want to sit in these very, they're not mundane questions. They are real, practical, very tangible questions. And they're frightening. And I think we so rarely connect that question of, will I be able to pay my bills? with that same question of, does God really care? Is God really 
involved in my life is God. Is God good? And and so it's easy to sort of see a crisis of faith as being something sort of cerebral or disconnected from yeah, sort of existential. Very practical. Yeah. Yeah. But they really they are so woven together because, you know, how we the questions we ask about sort of our day-to-day lives are intertwined with the questions that we're asking about God as well and God's goodness and God's presence and God's participation in our lives. I, I totally agree with you. I think that we can either come at these sort of faith crises from, from one way or the other, but either way we're going to, you know, we're something's getting deconstructed here. Something's getting mm-hmm. um, inspected. Something's getting looked at from all sides. And maybe it starts with, can I pay my bills? Maybe it starts with, is God good? But they're going to meet at some mm-hmm. point. They're going to bang <laughs> up against each other. And because we are human, because we are tangible, touchable, you know, made of yeah. dust. What helped me in that season of having to sit with these questions was kind of shifting from this understanding that my faith was about right belief and much more that my faith was about being drawn into communion with God. It was through my tactile work as a baker, baking bread for communion that grounded me and healed me and then helped me understand that that the work of God is this work of drawing us near and that happens in these tangible, tangible ways. Are there any practices or habits that ground you as you are learning to live the questions? Like I said, we live on the edge of the Adirondack State Park, which is, it's a huge, it's a huge park. I think it's the largest state park in the United States and uh, it's full. It's like a canoer's paradise and so and my husband and I live on one of those rivers that that flows through the mountains and so spending time out on the water for us and for me in particular I think is a really grounding Mm. thing it it enables me to have my hands with with kayaking much like kneading bread you you have to use both Mm -hmm. hands I think the blessing of that is you can't multitask at all I don't even bring my you know headphones out there I don't listen to podcasts or things like that because I think that's there are very few things in our lives it's very few spaces in our lives that we're not even subconsciously multitasking Mm -hmm. and that is one space for me that I can keep the main thing the main thing and Mm -hmm stick with the questions. This Brueggemann reference, this idea that we are so disconnected from home and yet ironically have the most ability to be grounded and that it's kind of, he identifies it as the source of a lot of societal unease, this like lack of rootedness to community or to home presses us to find grounding in in other things, be that rigidness and belief and the need for the need for a rigid faith that answers the questions or the quest for some sense of belonging or identity in some fast, either like a deeply introspective attempt Mm -hmm. to understand who we are or in the food world, I see this a lot linked between this quest for a particular food identity and and diet culture that there's culturally, we have a lot of disconnect, especially among, I think, middle-class white Americans, a disconnect from any kind of food culture or connection to family and place through food, which I think then pushes people to identify 
with a particular sort of diet of some kind. It, it provides mm-hmm. that sense of grounding or belonging. Yeah. I'm curious how you have found grounding in home and in making this new home a home. And is your canoeing and kayaking a part of that or what other sort of things have have assisted in that? So the past 12 years of my life, I mean, I would say most of my life I lived either city adjacent or in cities. And yet I think I've always, I I feel very overstimulated by the noise of traffic and by concrete everywhere. It's very hard for me to feel grounded in a place like that. And I, I understand that's a complete first world problem. But I think for me, I had to recognize that if my vocation is partially in some ways dependent on me being grounded and in having a sense of surety and a, a, a space to grow and a space to flourish, which I do think as a writer, that is important for me as a as someone who's thinking in public. I don't want to come from a place of scarcity and be thinking in public. And so, and we can't always control that, of course. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I couldn't control it for most of my life, but moving here was very much an intentional act to move to a smaller community. So we live in a, a small university town and I think there are so many habits here that are grounding and letting us flourish in this space. Being out on the water is, is a big one. Exploring millions of acres of water and mountains, but also like living within a few minute walk from the library and the, the food co-op and the coffee shops and the everything that we need is right here. And that's really important to us because we want to live a local life. We want to, and not just because it's like the stylish thing to do, but mm-hmm. because we actually think that it's good for our souls to be constrained to a space. We actually theologically believe that that is important for us to have boundaries that feel a little bit snug maybe sometimes but we also believe that it's important for us our eschatology our belief about the world our belief about god's kingdom is is so rooted and grounded in being able to be invested in this place intentionally moving toward those things having those things to some degree now enables us to flourish within those boundaries in a in a more I always talk about Psalm 16, the boundary lines have fallen for me in a pleasant place. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What does it mean to live within this beautiful inheritance of boundary lines? Of What does that look like? And I think this move that we've made, which is very counter millennials everywhere, has been very much on purpose for us to push back against that sense of transiency that all of our peers and we have had. I mean, my husband and I, my husband grew up in a military family and never had, never lived anywhere for more than two years. And so we've been a part of that culture. And I think this is our intentional way of saying, like, we are going to make a different choice and imperfectly. But yeah. For folks who might not have the ability right now to feel rooted or grounded to a place, either because of that transience by choice or that transience not by choice, what would be your guidance or tips or recommendations in in how to be able to sit in sort of these questions, this unknowing? I have, I have one huge, and I know this is going to resonate with you, 
dinner at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. Get get you some cloth napkins, get you some candles, whatever. Every night should be special. Sit at the dinner table. If you don't have people to sit with, sometimes sitting alone can be mm-hmm. a really hard thing but also a really powerful, beautiful thing. And to be able to set a beautiful table and make a beautiful meal, even just for yourself, is saying, I am beloved by God and he feeds me with his food. Mm-hmm. And and I think if you do have the opportunity to sit with other people, you should take it whenever you can. And I, I don't think it always has to be, you know, cloth napkins and nice plates and candles. I just think there's something really, it's a gift from God to be able to celebrate the ordinary and we get to make every space a sacred space and i think the dinner table is has the opportunity to be one of the most sacred spaces in the home and i think we should protect it if we can i think a lot about the rhythms of our days are essentially the rhythms of our lives and it is very easy for me as a single person that lives alone who's in a transient season to an extent to wait until there's some kind of stability to build rhythms that let me sit in and enjoy the this season that I'm in and um yeah there you know I, I have to constantly remind myself of like no this is like this is it this like transients because of the work that I've chosen in a way this sort of there are certain unknowns that I will always be sitting in. And so then finding the things that root and ground me now and finding the rhythms that build the life that I want are, that's that's the only way forward. I can't You can't live in this perpetual waiting for the season of stability. I think really in allowing myself to sit and enjoy and celebrate a meal even eaten by myself is a huge piece of that because it's very easy to think like, well, nobody's here. I should just sit on the couch and watch something while I eat. Mm-hmm. Um, But I'm a firm believer that every time we eat, we are being drawn into the communion of God's creation, that um, we are being drawn into communion with God through our own bodies, through the people that we eat with, if we are eating with others, but also all all of the people and non-human critters that were involved in this meal becoming a part of our table. It is, it is. And it's so easy to think about, you know, to to think about food as just fuel or to Mm. not think about the many lives that were involved in in it arriving in front of us and celebrating that and and being reminded that this is a gift from God that grounds us to God's creation yeah and reminds us that we are humans and human bodies that are called good as a hard but good thing yeah yeah that's beautiful if you had to give one sort of kitchen or hospitality tip that you think that everyone should know about? (laughs) Do you have a go-to, like, this is what I wish everyone knew to help the dinner table or the kitchen to become a sacramental space? Hmm. Or a gadget. It could be a favorite gadget that you just think everyone needs to know. (laughs) So can I say, I I do have a favorite gadget, but I also think that there is a a habit that, that should happen. My favorite gadget is an immersion blender. I think everyone should have one. It's, I seriously, I use it more than my crock pot, my blender, my mixer combined. If you are a soup person, get you an immersion blender. (laughs) It is the best thing in the world. And when your blade breaks, you can get a new one for 15 bucks. It's totally, it's the best kitchen gadget. (laughs) But I, I think I would go back to the lighting of a candle. I think there's something 
you know, you asked me in the beginning, what does home taste like? And I, I think home tastes warm and we're having a massive heat wave right now across the country. So not all of us want to be warm, but there's something warming about a candlelight in front of, in front of you. And I think it, it says to those who gather around it, uh, somehow, I think almost mysteriously it says you are welcomed here and I see you here and I want you here it's like this intentionality it's not accidental you have to light a candle mm-hmm. so I just I find a lot of like goodness and beauty in that they don't have to be expensive candles I get a pack of like 60 beeswax candles off of Etsy for I don't know a buck a candle or something like that so you can do it I love that yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for being here with me, with, mm. with us. Can you share where people can find you? Yeah, you can find me. I am writing online. You can go to, my name is spelled L-O-R-E, like Lore, Lori Wilbert, W-I-L-B-E-R-T.com, LoriWilbert.com, or Sayable.net. You can also find me on Instagram or Twitter at Lori Wilbert. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Kendall. In Bergman's book, The Land, he identifies that the Israelites' yearning for home wasn't actually put to rest once they entered the Promised Land. In fact, being rooted to a place brought up a whole new slew of problems. Instead, he recommends that we learn from the yearning itself and from the journey toward home. It reminds me of Rilke's encouragement to live the questions so that gradually you might, without even noticing, live into the answer. I love Lori's recommendations for creating a sense of belonging in your home right now. Set the table, light candles, pay attention to the smells, the sounds, and the tastes around you. Ask God to be present in these tangible acts, reminding us that even in our wandering, we are never alone. Inhale. God is concerned. Exhale. With our yearning to belong. And now to close, a prayer for those who long for a place to call home. God of Ezekiel, you know the isolation we feel as we wonder and wander and question if we'll ever feel like we belong. You were the God who spoke to a valley of dry bones, brought them to life with the promise of a place to call home. Fill us with hope as you filled that valley with your breath, hope that spurs us to create home wherever we may be. Amen. Kitchen Meditations is brought to you by the Edible Theology Project, where the communion table meets the dinner table. We encourage you to discuss this episode around the table with your spouse, small group, or friends. Need some help getting into that rhythm? Sign up for our weekly newsletter at edibletheology.com and you'll get discussion questions and a recipe delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our intro music is by Josh Garrels. A huge thank you to the Edible Theology team, especially our producer, Jason Rugg, who made this podcast possible. We would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or Spotify. Then share this episode with your friends. Your help ensures that others discover this podcast too.